and welcome to episode 57 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Greenwald, joined almost always by Kyle Klochenka. We've been off the air for a little while, but given current circumstances, we wanted to make sure that we were providing our clients and you, our listeners, with as much value as possible. And while we're all stuck in our homes and social distancing, we thought, hey, let's get some really smart people on the show to provide some uh, really awesome insight. So today I'm, I'm pleased to introduce our guest. Our guest is Dr. Lisa Lewis. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, Lisa, you are a licensed psychologist, and I find really fascinating about what you're doing is that it, your work seems to satisfy and I'll be asking as well, Kyle, some questions that are kind of selfish as coaches who would yeah. value, benefit, benefit from your service. Um, but you seem to be providing a niche that is is missing, in my opinion, for fitness professionals. Mm. Because it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in professional or university settings, you have the coach whose job is just to coach and the sports psychologist whose job is there to kind of almost exist on, on uh, while working together, you know, they're staying kind of like in their lanes, right? Mm. They have, um, they have these uh, um, uh, shared uh, teams that they work with, but they have very different job descriptions. Of mm -hmm. course, I think it becomes a little bit harder outside of those professional and academic settings of sport for coaches to have that kind of, to help, yeah to, yeah, to help them understand how to, because they can't refer, like we can't just refer clients to that sports psychologist, right? right. We're, we're trying to seek how to gain this information ourselves and someone uh, as, as uh, practiced and as, as experienced as you are is here to help, it sounds. Thank you. Yes. Well, I am here to help. And I do, of course, I'm so biased, but I completely agree with you that there is this lack, I think, of education and support for psychological skills for people who work in fitness and nutrition settings. And I, there's a broad range of psychological skills that I think you are using on a regular basis. It's, it just seems to me that, number one, it's not part of formal training. And number two, the things that burn fitness professionals out and that really seem to add a lot of stress isn't so much the nuts and bolts of program design and sets and reps and getting people stronger or leaner. It's the psychological aspects of, of working with clients. So, you know, I have, I have noticed that there is this kind of lack and because my background, number one is in counseling psychology and number two is in sports psychology. It just, um, it just made a lot of sense to lean into that and to start to provide educational services and, and consultation, you know, around these missing pieces. Wonderful. So uh, I, I really appreciate that, that you're here to share um, matters that are evidence-based and, and that really are, are, are speaking to, you know, you know, giving fitness professionals the tools they need to become better communicators. And, and I very much agree that, it's a field uh, while the sets reps and programming schemes matter that is mm -hmm. a field for all fitness professionals whether you're a physical therapist a chiropractor a nutritionist or a strength coach and this is really ultimately what what brings us together is our ability to communicate well to our clients so because this field of psychology and as we kind of narrow it down more towards sports psychology uh, it is so vast. Um, if someone asked me, Hey Zach, tell me about evidence-based forms of training. Well, I could answer that question. It might be more fleshed out than I, um, they might hope for it to be. It's not insightful. <laughs> so I think yeah. where I to instead focus my que first question is when you begin with a new fitness professional or when you set out to designing your online course, which we'll talk more about, mm -hmm. where do you like to start with, a new client or in your education process? Yeah. So when I'm meeting a new client who might be a strength coach or a nutrition coach or a personal trainer, some, something in that vein, if they're coming to me, they, they're coming because there's some kind of problem that they haven't been able to deal with on their own yet. So I like to start with 
what it is that they're identifying as an issue um, and how how it could get better as they see it. So I'm, I'm solution focused. And um, in my experience, people who work with people have really good communication skills and, and pretty good insight. It's that there's this lack of kind of understanding how to apply some strategies um, or, ha- or how to hold both the, the parts of your job that are the actual content, like providing nutrition consultation or strength coaching and the psychological components of it. So it's hard to speak in generalities, but for example, um, you know, I, I recently had a, a coach come and seek me out for individual consultation um, because he felt that for the most part, he was really good at getting results from most of his clients but he was struggling with working with um, women in particular who seemed to have problems with emotional eating. And so this was, you know, eating things that weren't on their meal plan, um, eating more or not being honest on their food log, that sort of thing. And that this was causing him, you know, frustration because he was like, I know how to help them. They're just not accepting the help. And so the focus there was on how he could change his strategies, how he could change his mindset um, and how he could communicate with the client to basically give them more, more autonomy and more ownership in order to help them take responsibility for their behaviors. Um, so sometimes I think coaches come to me looking for how do I get control? But what we come to is actually, if you relinquish some control and give it back, put it back on the client, uh, they're going to take ownership and get better results. And so that's just one way to, to give an example of how I approach working with a coach individually is to see what the problem is as they identify it and then troubleshoot how they can change their interaction using strategies b- based on motivational theory or behavior change theory. Um, the second part of your question is about designing curriculum. And so the course that I just put out is volume one of what I hope is multiple volumes. And what I wanted to do is start with the foundational bases of motivation and behavior change, because that's what I think most fitness professionals are really grappling with on a day-to-day basis. Because as we all know, if clients were compliant, like most of us wouldn't be in business. The only reason there's so many personal trainers and nutrition coaches and so many modalities and strategies is because people have a hard time changing and sticking with it. So the course is based in what I think is kind of the 101, which is theory of motivation and how to apply it, theory of behavior change uh, and the stages of change and how to work with that, and then motivational interviewing skills. So how to use your communication to enhance motivation and facilitate the behavior change. Great. And the next question I have, in res- or in, rather in response to that, Lisa, is if, if a coach is now seeking your services or, or perhaps just even listening to this podcast, yeah. Are they going to be thinking about, or, or perhaps you know, this person takes your uh, ongoing course that they can do at their own speed? Mm-hmm. Are they thinking about, all right, well now I have my 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 tools, and I'm going to take those tools, and I'm just going to be ready to kind of ask all of these these questions to my clients. Um, uh, am I thinking of this as I'm going to kind of equip myself with the skills so that as matters come up, I'm better able to uh, hear and listen and, and create strategy for my clients. And, and I hope what I, I'm stating that as, as clearly as I wanted, but I think maybe not. Uh, I think what I, I mean to say is how much of a strength coach or a rather a fitness professional, how much of this matter is presenting the client with information to give back up front or, or how much is it just an ongoing thing that you get better at as you go? Mm. First, and in my opinion, it might be a little bit. In my experience, it might be a little bit of both. There's some there be some intake questions with like ever ongoing and improving communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I see what you're asking, it, um, and I think the latter of what you said is more of what the course addresses. So one topic that comes up a lot that I think you're kind of backing into or that you're kind of addressing is like fitness professionals staying in their lane, quote unquote. 
And so I've met with many fitness professionals that are, that say like, you know, once a client starts talking about their depression or their anxiety, or if they get teary in the middle of a session, or if they are binge eating, you know, I'm not exactly sure like how much to open that can of worms, or if I should even address it at all, or if I should refer them right away. You know, I think it comes from this good place of wanting to practice ethically and in a competent way. But sometimes I think some trainers can sort of shut the door on a conversation that could be useful, or they feel like they have to go into counselor mode. And, and I think both of those extremes don't feel good for either person. So I, I want, what I want to do, my intentionality behind the course is to add tools to the toolbox for the coach so that he or she feels that they can do their job to the best of their ability with the augmentation of communication skills and an understanding for the nature of motivation. So it's not so much that you will be disseminating knowledge to your clients about here's what your motivation is and here's how it works. It's more that you will gain kind of understanding of how motivation works. You'll be able to recognize things that your clients say that communicate to you their level of readiness, uh, their amount of drive, uh, the goals that they have as they wax and wane or change, that you'll be able to assess that and then implement programming or just reinforcement to them by what you say that is going to maximize the motivation that they that they come to you with. Does, does that um, address the question that you're asking? It, it does. And I, I think that um, there perhaps could be some valuable things that you might provide clients with from an educational standpoint. Mm. That, and certainly having clients that we've worked with for, you know, three, four, maybe some, in some cases, six plus years, these, these strategies, um, I think, improve as you go, as long as you're heading in the right direction with your resources. Yeah. Approach. And, and as you're getting to understand your client better and not presuming to know everything up front. I think, and I, I'm curious if, if you've observed this, something that I've recognized is that the, the, the more strict the the program without allowing for flexibility and, and mm-hmm. the less allowing for input from the client, uh, it seems like the, the, the outcome is uh, either – less successful or just not going to be as, as, as sustainable as long-term of a relationship. So would you say that in, in, in beginning uh, a conversation with the athlete, there are some things that you might want to get to know about them up front and then other aspects of the relationship that you're embarking on that will just kind of take a little bit more time? Yes. I think for sure you want to um, have an intake. You want to have a process of getting to know why the client's coming in and what their goals are. But really, your most effective instrument for affecting change is your rapport and your relationship with the client. So um, if your client sees that you care and you're paying attention and you're invested and you can be flexible with the ways in which their motivation waxes and wanes and their goals change, that is really going to give you the most leverage possible and help that client to feel that you're supporting them in their endeavors um, and to kind of retain that relationship and grow that relationship. Um, that, that sounds wonderful. And, and you mentioned before, and I'd like to talk about um, motivation, but maybe we can also talk about it in the context that, as you've mentioned just a few times so far, um, quote unquote, motivational interviewing. Uh, this is something that we use with our clients. Mm-hmm. Time that we recognize we have to make sure that people don't feel like they're being psychoanalyzed. And like you said, it's coming from a place of uh, you know, genuine care and compassion. So might you speak to the importance of and exactly what goes behind motivational interviewing? And oh, sure. Secondly, um, secondly, how it's tied to just understanding more about motivation from that client and perhaps around the whole situation. Sure. Yeah. So motivational interviewing is a style of communication that has been around for decades. It is an evidence-based style. It came from counseling and it started in smoking cessation programs. So the basic premise of motivational interviewing is that the client has all the motivation, all the tools, all the drive, you know, basically all the juice, all the raw materials that they need to make change and to grow. And the role of the helper 
whether that be a counselor or a coach, is to facilitate that, is to help them lead themselves, identify goals and strategies to add technical support when needed, but essentially to be a collaborator, not to come in as the expert who's going to disseminate or to instill um, motivation or inspiration. So it's a different posture than the expert, you know, and the person looking up to the expert. It is is much more collaborative. Um, if you know Mark Fisher from Mark Fisher Fitness, he describes their coaches as Sherpas. This is a guide who's there to help, um, you know, help that person climb to the top of the mountain. So the basic premise under MI is so central to motivational theory and what we learn over and over and over again. And if, you know, if you have coaches who are listening, they know the more you boss a client around, the more you take away their autonomy, the more, the less flexible you are, the more turnover you're going to have and the less compliance you're going to have. And it's not going to be fun for the client. Yes, there are exceptions. There are clients who love to be bossed around and told what to do. But I would argue that as a certain segment of the population who is very type A or who is very athletically skilled and their competency is so high that they want to be in that kind of strict environment. But for many people who are working with gen pop or people who are new to fitness settings or, or come into nutritional coaching settings like you know overweight or obese, they really need that collaborative spirit to help them identify, why do I really want to do this? Like, where is the fire? And then how can the coach stoke that fire to help it to grow and then move that energy forward in a positive direction? So that is what MI is designed to do. And I think, I love it for a million reasons, but in addition to it being, in my opinion, the most effective with every kind of client, and I say that from personal experience, I also feel that it's very healthy for the coach or the counselor because it keeps you from going into this place where you have to be the end all be all and you have to know everything and you have to give your clients all of your energy so that they have the energy to change. No, you know, the, the premise here and the posture in this collaboration is that you're there to help them because they are the experts on themselves and Mm -hmm. you can add information and you can add encouragement, but it's not up to you as the coach. The ownership is always stays with the client. I, yeah, and I think that this has helped me um, really as a coach become the coach that best reflects my own personal character, which is one uh, that really values compassion mm. and communication. And what I mean by that is when I was a very young coach, I still have a lot to learn. Um, but you know, uh, when I first started coaching, I should say, um, I, I felt like I had to prove myself. So I felt like had to be that expert. And I look back at now and, and see such silly things um, where it might have been then. Um, well, let me show you this paper that plays into my confirmation bias on the matter that might keep you a <laughs> mm-hmm. Now it's more like, well, um, again, I kind of, and then also providing an example, I, I say, um, so, you know, what are your thoughts and expectations around this continued practice? towards your goals, right? Just mm-hmm. let them, in their own words, speak their true thoughts. Uh, and I think this also echoes something that's fascinating. We also work with clients who are using just sound exercise theory and programming to rehab injury. Yeah. Um, and so we're always talking with a lot of uh, physical therapists and medical doctors. And one of our, our dear friends who we actually have had on the podcast before and who spoke about motivational interviewing, he, he recently told me about a study um, that said, and this was for, uh, in, a, in the world of physical therapy, that when a client is able to present their history and their symptoms without interruption or feeling of judgment, that it already improves the client outcomes before treatment's even been, uh, and before treatment's even gone underway. And I think that speaks to the power of, uh, you know, communication, collaboration, and preventing this kind of God complex from the, from the coach. Yeah. And I, and that study just really underlines the most precious commodity that you have to give your client is your attention mm-hmm. is your, you know, your undivided attention. And so in that story or in that study, 
the person is sitting quietly and just absorbing it, you know, and probably doing some active listening, but they don't have to have the answer in order for there to be a therapeutic effect of that client providing their history. Um, and I, I think that's a very important component is to, you know, be human, be your authentic self. I think some of the reasons why people are looking for, um, motivational interviewing skills that are specific to their, whatever their practice is. Uh, so for example, people who I work with in private consultation or have done workshops with are like, where can I, where can I learn more about motivational interviewing? Um, you know, they want, they want sentences or vignettes that are specific to their work because they want what they say to feel the most genuine and authentic. And I think that's really like practicing learning yourself. What are the ways in which I can reflect a statement or validate the client or provide positive feedback that is going to feel like me. And that's actually going to be helpful. You know, that's the art of it. I think that's what takes the practice. Um, and it's some of what I dress in the course. Um, and I, so I think it's that pair, like one, you're, you're listening and you're attentive and you're, and you're giving of yourself in that time you're with the client, but then two, you're able to communicate in these intentional positive ways that also are very genuine to you. So your client feels that you're being authentic with them in the moment. Mm, very cool. Very concept. No, I've just been enjoying hearing you guys talk. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I, I just like, I, I did have one question come up and that is when I um, practice, it's so fun. I, and I don't know if you have felt this way. When you um, talk about motivational interviewing, does it ever sound funny that like that, it, that it has that title? Because to me, when it, when it works and it's just kind of grooving, like to me, it just makes sense. I think it's very honest. It feels very ethical. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel forced. Um, right. So I, when I hear the term motivational interviewing, like you said, people look for scripts, but mm -hmm. um, that's not really the case. But um, can you explain how just simply like, you know, active listening and um, perhaps providing these more open-ended thoughtful questions around clients' behavior actually improves their, the client's, motivation uh or their stick-to-itiveness and, and might you be able to even explain a little bit more like how significant the client's motivation is versus the motivation of the team does this make sense like, yeah like, motivation is an interesting thing to me i don't really think about it like you know i'm gonna just like give a pep talk at halftime i i always i really struggle defining what motivation means in my own words okay so motivation is an internal energy that determines behaviors, persistence, and direction. It is an internal state, and we all are motivated. We all have it. So it's not like a gas tank that is empty or full, um, but it changes in its quality. You know, the, the reasons why we are motivated. Um, and so motivational interviewing is effective because instead of trying, um, instead of a practitioner or a coach trying to fill up the motivation tank, you know, get the quantity up, they are instead listening and communicating with the client to unpack and identify what their specific qualities or types of motivations are. And then with the client making a plan for how to leverage or harness those motivate motivations to move them into action. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, um really did that answer the question or was that too? No, I, I, I love the analogy of the gas tank. And I think that's why I've always struggled, um, to like explain or, or felt strange about explaining motivational interviewing just because I don't even like the word <clears throat> motivation because I attach mm -hmm. time speeches, but the way that you just described it, um, yeah, I, I really like because it expresses that it's something that you can help someone to bring out themselves, not you helping or not you kind of um, imposing or, or presuming to know what gets that person quote unquote motivated. Right. You got it. Like I often, clients will say to me sometimes like at the end of a session, whether I'm, you know, I also have a private practice. So I see, 
like patients who have mental health problems. I also see clients who are looking for like sports psychology, performance enhancement, executive coaching. And at the end of any of those sessions, or if I'm doing consultation with a fit pro, I'll say, how did this go today? What was this like for you to sit and talk with me? And one, I, I would say the most common piece of feedback is like, um, this was good because it helped me to like unpack everything and, and be able to like get organized and look at what I want and how I can get there. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's not that I gave them anything. It's just that we took out all of the swirling thoughts and feelings and, com- and competing needs and demands. And we just got it organized, which I used, you know, which I do by using reflection and summarizing and helping them to kind of line up what their priorities are and what their skills and abilities are. So that at the end, the client's like, okay, like I got this clear picture of what I want and how I can get there and and maybe what my action plan is going to be for the next one to three weeks. So it's this combination of doing work that's very abstract and and very mental and very cognitive, but also of ending up with something that is actionable and that has a timetable, which I think all of us just love, you know, to leave an abstract situation with something that is concrete at the end. That's true. I I really like that. Um, I'd like to speak to a few things that we've learned over the year from coaches who have given, and this is more on the programming side of things, um, because I feel like a lot of coaches might have their nuts and bolts of programming down, that there are many very tiny things that they could do perhaps to their program design that, especially if they're communicating from a distance, that can be really helpful and perhaps be able to speak to why it's effective for us, or if they haven't, just call us out and say like how (laughs) we could better do it. Um, so sometimes what we'll describe or what we'll tell athletes, what we'll put at the end of their program, daily program. Um, and this was recommended to us, I believe, how was it? I believe this was breaking Ferris who said this, but it was that in the final five to 10 minutes of their workout, have fun, do whatever it is that you would like to do and, and write down what that is. So it was also mentioned. That oh yeah. One, one, uh, yeah. Another one of our, our, uh, dear friends and someone who's consulted us is just the, the last part of the workout, final five, 10 minutes, do whatever you'd like. And that's been uh, something that our clients have really loved. Um, mm-hmm. Something else that our clients have enjoyed is that if they're feeling things like uh, feeling sensations of burnout um, and, and, and just like, you know, kind of uh, just it, it, fatigue beyond their ability to complete their program as they would under other quote unquote normal circumstances is having a conversation so as to say, how could uh, the program be as as possible and as much uh, uh, kind of like in, in your power to kind of you know work on the things you need to outside of the gym perhaps to come back to something that feels a little bit more structured. Um, whereas in the past we might have uh, in, in you know, stark contra- contradiction to those two things, we might have made the program very inflexible without for them to go in and add their own things and that perhaps if people showed to keep skipping workouts and you see workouts that just aren't completed aren't completed instead of having a conversation with them as to saying like hey you know like we got to stay on it asking instead the question what are the challenges and how can we make this program work for you right now so what would you say that to, to others is, is really beneficial of of considerations like this and and is it that these things have been powerful because of what you mentioned with not creating dependency and involving their own uh, or improving their own um, their own autonomy i think all the things you mentioned can be tools it depends on where the client is at and so my response to everything you just said is yes and use all of these things with scaffolding and what i mean by scaffolding is there are sometimes when clients are struggling or when they don't feel competent and they need a lot of structure. They need a lot of cueing. They need a lot of specifics around sets and reps. They need to be doing pretty elementary movements and they want to be told what to do because they're beginners or they've just moved into something different or because they're having a really hard time just being motivated and they want it kind of laid out for them. And then as clients become more and more competent and as they enjoy more and more, 
then you can really loosen up that structure and you want to provide more and more autonomy because autonomy supportive environments really allow that intrinsic motivation and that enjoyment to thrive and take over um, and, and really kind of enhance motivation the most. So there are some athletes, like you just said, there are some athletes who they love to have choice. They love to have freedom. When they say, oh, what do you want to do the last 10 minutes? They choose things where they kick their own ass just because they like that, you know, and they're ready for that. And they want to lean into that space that you provide for them. While on the other hand, there's some clients either because they're just starting out or because of something that's going on in their personal life or because of an injury where they really want more structure and they want more direct, specific instruction and informational feedback about what to do and that that will help them to feel that they're executing properly, that they're growing and moving forward and that that will actually be motivating for them. That, that is, yep. Yeah. As you spoke through that, I'm like that, those circumstances in which more structure would be uh, much more beneficial. I'm, I'm nodding my head. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I've, I've definitely had clients who some of them want, um, even if they're very experienced, want to just have everything written out. And then others are like, yeah, I'm fine with um, like making that up at the end and, and enjoying that. Um, I, I, I have a bunch of thoughts in my head and hopefully I can form this into a clear question. Um, but it's about motivation and um I guess it kind of is like, is, is motivation, like having, being motivated, always the goal. So like some people will say like, well, I'm not necessarily motivated to go to the gym, but for me at this point, it's become uh, a habit. And like you said, the motivation could be like a gas tank where sometimes it's low, sometimes it's high, sometimes it's high. Mm. So where motivation, like being, like helping your client always be motivated as the goal, or is it, uh, something where like we can use these things to keep motivation high until it becomes maybe like um, a part of their I- identity or becomes a habit or uh, something of that sort. Ho- hopefully uh, um, I'm uh, uh, saying that correctly because I've just heard people say uh, like motivation should always be the goal. And then even breaking it down between like a difference between inspiration, motivation, and I, I can't think of like the third one I've heard, but mm-hmm. um does that, does that, uh, hopefully what I'm saying comes across, uh, I totally get it. And I totally have an answer. I don't know if my answer will match like exactly the way you're thinking about it, but motivation is a construct. So I get that people, how they conceptualize it is different. The way that I conceptualize motivation is according to the self-determination theory. This is Ryan and It's a, it's a theory of motivation that has, has, been around for decades. I like it because it's frequently applied to sport and exercise settings and and other settings as well, but there's a really beautiful, strong evidence base and it has an organismic orientation, which means just like motivational interviewing, the primary belief, the foundational um, assertion is that the, the client, the individual has everything they need. They have all the motivation they need. They don't need it from someone else. And they can self-determine, you know, its direction and persistence. So according to self-determination theory, um, there are different ways in which we are motivated. So take, for example, your client who says, I'm not motivated. It's just a habit. So if a client identifies physical activity as a habit, it means that that behavior is integrated into their personality and their, and their lifestyle. This is called integrated regulation. And according to, um, the self-determination theory, integrated regulation is a very high level of motivation. It is a type. It is a quality of motivation. So what your client is saying is like, it's hands off. You know, I don't need any external reward. I don't need a pat on the back. I don't need, you know, I don't know, a Tootsie roll at the end of my workout. Like the, the, the reward is actually me maintaining um, behaviors, which I feel are integral to my personality and my character and what I find valuable. There are other people who say I am not motivated to work out, but there's a long history of cardiovascular disease in my family. And so I want to be around for my grandkids. So I'm going to do what I need to do to have a healthy heart and, and not to become obese because I want to change, you know, the story of what has happened in my family to every single man, you know, past the age of 55. That individual may not feel inspired, 
but their motivation is called identified regulation. They are motivated for an outcome that they identify as personally meaningful. So it's just another type, another quality of motivation, you know, according to this specific theory. Mm, that makes sense. It's always interesting to, um, cause I find in like sports science as well, um, like there, like there can be a couple of different theories and depending on right. which someone, um, I don't know if prescribes to is the word here, but prescribes to, it can change the definition of, of something else. So, yeah, uh, I think it's just like the way, the framework that we put around it, you know, so we create the framework and I don't necessarily think there are ones that are terrible and ones that are fabulous, but I yeah. think getting the frame just allows you a way to talk about it in an organized yeah. way. And the self-determination theory is kind of just my jam. And it is, I will say it is chapter one and chapter two of this course to outline, you know, here, here's the way motivation works. Here are these different types along the spectrum of motivation. And then here's how you assess what it is, leverage it and, and facilitate your client getting the most they can get out of that type of motivation. And, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the word, the integrated, um, regulation regulation. Is that, is that something that's like on that spectrum and it's a higher end on that spectrum or is that Yes. So the, so if we, if we just want to like do like a survey of the spectrum of motivation all the way at the bottom or at the, at one end, you have a motivation, which means zero, not motivated. These are, these are either family members or people you don't know because they're not coming to the gym (laughs) or they're, you know, they're not training. They are not there where they have anything on their radar about exercising or changing their nutritional habits. The next step beyond that is external regulation. External regulation is that kind of one-on-one way of behavior change where a client will either engage in a behavior to incur a reward or to avoid a punishment. Mm. So I don't want to go to my high school reunion, 25 pounds overweight. I'm going to get in there and do what it takes, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're looking for that external reward or I know people who work at large organizations and if they get a certain amount of steps on their pedometer or if they use the gym at their job, they get like points and they can use the points to buy things. My mother actually had that. Yeah. 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 So that's an external reward that, that is an external regulation. It just means that the, you're motivated by this extrinsic reward punishment. The next step beyond that is called introjected regulation. Introjected regulation means The individual is motivated for internal reasons, but the internal state is kind of created by social pressure. So for example, this is when you go to the gym because you'll feel guilty if you don't go, or you go to your group exercise class because you'll feel bad if you don't show up and all your, you know, your friends show up for it. Or you work out because you're like, you know what? I don't feel like it, but after I do it, I'm going to feel like a million bucks and I'm going to feel proud that I got it over with. So interjected regulation is about guilt and pride and either incurring or avoiding those feelings. So what's good about them, I mean, we've all gotten through our workout, you know, for one of those end results, either to feel proud or to avoid feeling guilty. So it has utility in that it can get the job done here and there when you just got to drag yourself, you know, to get your workout in. But the benefit of it is then you get your next rep in, you get your next workout in, you show to yourself that you can do it and you probably feel better afterwards. So it can enhance motivation um, to use that, that motivation. I, people can't rely on that forever, but it does have its utility. The next step beyond that is identified regulation. Identified regulation means the actual physical activity itself may not be something that the client is motivated to do but they do it because they identify the outcome as being meaningful. So improved cardiovascular health, reduced risk for, you know, mortality or obesity, wanting to be able to run around and play with their kids, um, wanting to be able to run a half marathon with their niece, you know, those kinds of things. They're doing it for an internal reason, but the actual physical activity itself is a means to an end. The next more internalized form of motivation beyond that is integrated regulation, which we were talking about. Anybody who's listening, that's a fit pro or a meathead or a fitness lover or a triathlete, like, you know, we're preaching to the choir. Like we, we don't only drink the Kool-Aid, like we are Kool-Aid. We are like, you know, we may love to go to the gym and like kick our asses and do really miserable workouts that make us feel exhausted. And we don't do it because we like that internal state that gets created. It's uncomfortable, but we like being who we are. We like demonstrating our competencies 
We like showing off to ourselves and or other people in competition that we're good at this stuff. And it, it's, it, it's congruent. It, it's, you know, it's in alliance with who we feel we are as a person. And so that's really the jam. If once you're there or you have clients who are there and they just do it because they do it and it's part of them, like you're going to get, you're going to get consistent, you know, physical activity patterns that are really going to, you know, improve their lifestyle, their longevity, their health outcomes. Like that's really fabulous. And then of course, at the top of the spectrum, you have intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is engaging in a behavior solely for the internal state that it creates. So you don't care about any reward you get out of it. It's like being in flow or being in the zone or just feeling like in that moment, like I'm in this and I'm just kicking ass and I'm doing great. Like that internal state, which I think anybody listening who's ever been an athlete or who just loves training, you know what that feels like. Uh, so we can't have that every time we train, but we can have that sometimes. And, and the way we can move towards that is by fun. So when you mentioned helping your clients to experience fun in their workouts, it's so important because intrinsic motivation is like the sugar, you know, exercise is different from sport because sports are intrinsically fun for a lot of people. They're inherently enjoyable. Whereas strength training or cardiovascular exercise may not be fun. We, we helpers have to get creative in how to make that more fun for them so they can get a little bit of that sugar or intrinsic motivation. Mm, that makes sense. And, and, and as, um, I'm sure you, you might go into this in the course and we wouldn't have to cover all of this right now, but it's kind of like something that can be helpful for um, uh, people to do or fitness professionals to do is just obviously identify where someone might be along the spectrum. And then there's certain like techniques or tools or ways of communication that can help people either move along. Bingo. Uh, that's, yeah. that's the whole second module of my course is how do you identify by what they say or what their goals are, where they're at? And then what is the correct like intervention, communication, collaboration style to take according to that motivation. Mm. Yeah. So we do a lot of like vignettes, a lot of application because it's one thing to just hear the theory and get it. It's another thing to actually feel that you can hear what they're saying and then respond like in this really effective, specific way, you know? So that's, that's really the core of the first two modules of the course. Mm. So we had on the last episode, um, I don't know if you've uh, heard of or read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Um, he, he talks uh, in his book, and this is very much towards the, the beginning of the book, because it's, it's quite important in his mind for creating lasting habits, is this idea of uh, process versus outcome. And it sounds like that's what you've kind of taken us from is that you begin perhaps with the person who's attached to an outcome, but the problem with the outcome is that if, you know, that event comes and goes, that 5K race that you're training for so hard, when, when that outcome is done, it, it's, it's just a very kind of um, uh, instantaneous, uh, ultimately fleeting thing that you feel. If, if all you have is the outcome, perhaps that's not going to lead to sustainable behavior change around exercise and, and improving uh, intrinsic motivation, um, but that how instead perhaps just working towards improved processes and, and just kind of getting this, this um, uh, process mindset sharpened over time can help someone find that flow. Uh, but I like what you said that it sounds like the, the outcome, it doesn't mean that an outcome uh, uh, goal so it's motivated isn't important it's just that perhaps it has its time and its place in the larger teaching of you know uh, kind of client um, uh, empowerment mm. well you know the outcome is the carrot and some of us need a carrot some of us need to keep our eye on a ball and then some of us get to a place where we're like, we don't need to have a goal. Like, let's just do this. Let's just learn and grow and get better. And, and I think in different areas of our lives, we need different levels of scaffolding or, you know, we, we need a carrot for thump, some things and, and not a carrot for others. So there's plenty of us people who get to a certain level of fitness or strength. And then we say like, I just want to get in there and get after it. Like, I don't necessarily need to hit another PR or be it any lighter or any leaner or anything like that. Like, I just want to, you know, get in there and get after it. Whereas other people are like, you know, I want to, 
I get that it's the process and I like the process, but I like to be aiming at something. And, and human beings are goal-directed animals. Like we like to gain mastery over aspects of our experience. We like to develop skills and competencies and then show those off. So, you know, there, I think there are some people who just like to have a carrot to go after while other people are, are, I have a client right now who's like, I just like to learn to learn. Like, I don't need to, you know, make a certain amount of money or I don't need a certificate at the end. Like, the process, you know, he's at a certain point where he's like, the process is good for me. So he doesn't need that external kind of reinforcement or just something to focus his energies and attention. Um, so I think it can go either way, depending on how the client is talking. And that's why I think this art form of being a good coach is such a, it's a practice that never ends because you get better and better at hearing where your client's at. You know, you, you'll hear some clients say like, They want to chase after something. And even if they have insight to know, it doesn't really matter if I get that goal or not. It's really the process and the journey that matters more than hitting that outcome. I I would say all roads lead to Rome and it doesn't really matter um, if they need the carrot or don't need the carrot as long as they're in their process. Hmm. uh, Something I was just thinking about is within... um, like chasing a goal or around motivating. Um, is there a time where potentially, because I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced where you can see um, either like something that's potentially very like a negative um, a thing that someone's chasing and that mm. you can see in their health or very uh, uh, like hurting their mental health as well, potentially. And you're having the balance team. Well, it's like you're the coach. It's their choice. But then also wanting to be able to speak to someone about it. Um, and around like, if so, even though they may be very motivated, like trying to balance those two, like those two potentially extremes, I guess. Yeah. So um, that's a good question. And volume two, I, I want to address professional boundaries a lot because I feel like these are the very murky waters of you know, how do you best help a client? And, and so I think that in our practice of helping people, there are some hard, clear black and white boundaries. And then there's all this gray in the middle. And so with this kind of client who has like this, this big goal that may actually be destructive and may not be safe or may not be healthy, you know, the, the black and white boundary on that one end of the spectrum is do no harm. And if you know that you're not going to write any programming or recommend any, behaviors that are unsafe or that are going to cause them to get injured um, or sign off a nutrition plan that, you know, is going to cause them to get sick. So there is that hard and white line. I feel like most practitioners, like they know where that line is and they're, they, they get a feeling or a vibe when they're being pushed too far from a client inside of that boundary. You know, there's a lot of room of clients who, they may be choosing to practice certain diets or chase a certain goal that we feel is not evidence-based. That's not going to be helpful for them. That actually is going to increase their chances of injury or illness or um, get in the way of them progressing, but they really want to do it. So as long as they are safe and, and you as the practitioner don't feel that you are doing any harm what you do is observe and describe and you use specific feedback to help them to see the consequences and results of their behavior and their choices. So for example, if you have a client who is, you know, on a fat loss plan and they're, they're coming in and they're training three days a week and they're starting to make some progress. And then all of a sudden a couple months in, they're like, you know what I'm going to do this month? I'm going to do whole 30, you know? And then you and your mind are like, Oh shit, here we go. You know, um, it's going to be really hard for them. It's going to feel really restrictive. They're going to start fantasizing about ice cream and cheeseburgers four days in, and then they're going to come in tired and weak and probably not be able to execute their programming very well. Um, and so you might think that and feel that, and that's totally okay and human. But if you were to respond by poo-pooing that or shutting that down, it, it may not be helpful because the client has already decided autonomously that they want to give this a try. So you would start by saying, it sounds like you're really fired up about trying this like pretty challenging elimination style diet that isn't necessarily for fat loss. So I wonder what you're hoping to learn from this. 
-hmm. right? So I'm not saying don't do it. That's not going to be helpful, but I'm, I'm giving some, you know, I'm responding, providing a little bit of informational feedback and then opening it up. Like, tell me more about what you hope to get out of this. Um, and then let's say ultimately the client decides to do it after you have a conversation and they're like, oh, my sister-in-law did it and, you know, her skin cleared up and she lost 15 pounds and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So then, you know, when they come in week one and they're like shaky and they have a massive headache and then they have a, you know, a not that good workout, you could say like, hey, like, how did this go today? I know, you know, you can just give feedback about that and reflect on it. And then the next week when they come in and some, something else is happening. And then the third week when they come in and they can't stop talking about bacon, you know, (laughs) that you're able to reflect and summarize. And then at the end of the month, say to them, like, what did you get out of that experience? Like, what can we take with us as you move forward so that you're, you are not showing disapproval or judgment, but you are clearly mirroring for them, reflecting and summarizing the benefits and consequences of their choices. Mm, gotcha. Now, um, I hope you don't mind me. So my, my next question is actually, I, I, you could probably take it as a consultation question. So <laughs> okay. maybe we duped you into coming to this talk. <laughs> that is kind of a joke about podcasts. Just right? for it's me just... to be able to ask this question. <laughs> so um, uh, I, um, like, I really do feel like um, the... The field is one that I'm like meant to be in. It's what I, I, I really love my job and I, I love the the process of communicating and learning with with and from my clients over time just really excites me. So I could go to complete exhaustion before recognizing it, having really committed to these kind of conversations that like you have said take time and effort and energy and compassion. Um, and for coaches to be able to provide a, a very valuable service and a very um, meaningful relationship long-term, how do you like to help coaches who are expressing maybe this similar sentiment to make sure that they're able to take care of themselves? I know this is a challenge for medical doctors. It's a challenge for licensed psychologists. It's kind of like who watches the watchman, right? Yeah, so, people who help people. Kind of like have coaches make their own boundaries. Yeah, well. so, yeah. So, so what would you uh, recommend in this case to me or to other coaches who have expressed something similar is you know, how, despite you know, even that coach has the best intentions to want to be there and enjoys being there for everyone, that, that they can do it in a way that is long-lasting and, and that they're also considering their own um, side of the puzzle. Yeah. I think it's an excellent and important question to ask. And it's never too late to ask that question. The first thing I would recommend is that you take inventory of what are the things that replenish you, that recharge you, that rejuvenate you, and how often are you doing those things to keep yourself rejuvenated? And what boundaries do you need to put into place so that you can keep your tank full and you can prevent, you know, going into this energetic deficit where you start to lose enjoyment. Cause really when you're enjoying and when you're rested and when you're enthusiastic, that's when you're going to do your best work. So mm-hmm. it's not selfish to want to be, you know, in good psychological condition for your clients. So inventory meet, you know, if you are an introverted person, you probably need time with one person or zero people in order to recharge your battery. If you are a person um, who needs a lot of sleep, you know, you need to shut, you need to make rules about when you're shutting down uh, communicating with clients online or otherwise so that you can get a solid nine to 10 hours with no tech at night. If you are a person who really values preparing your own meals um, you, you need to take a good hard look at how much time do I need to put aside? What time do I need to leave work and what days, you know, do I need to go grocery shopping in order to really take care of myself in this way? And then I think the hardest part is implementation. Once you take those inventories, because what it means is that sometimes you're saying I'm not available. Sometimes you're saying I'll get back to you later. Sometimes you're closing your doors or cutting off taking sessions when maybe financially you feel like it would be good for you to take on one more late session or one more early session. So the implementation part of it is hard. I think we all feel we're going to lose business or um, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot 
if we set a limit, but ultimately setting the limit is what is going to help you do your best work and is what's going to sustain you so that you have longevity in your profession. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, trying to minimize the fear around that and helping people practice, even by taking baby steps, like making little adjustments here and there can really, can really help to improve self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my wife has certainly been, uh, a, a big player in that. Uh, she, she, you know, all as a team, my, like our, our whole team has helped me with that. Uh, uh, my wife also works for our company. So, and she kind of sees both sides, um, which while challenging, it's nice to have someone who's just providing that accountability and honesty. Mm-hmm. And I found that when that fear is uh, reduced and you recognize that perhaps, you know, in, in not sticking to those boundaries or uh, being able to say no or being willing to reschedule that, you know, you're kind of casting a vote for you to be able to provide a service or improve service to, to everyone else that's currently, you know, uh, a client and is, and is satisfied. I think that um, what I've been very surprised by this is I think we've been a company now for upwards of six plus years and, and, and just understand that if you really, you know, provide a, a valuable service to your clients, they want what's best for you. They, they want you to succeed. Um, and what I, it's so funny because in the beginning you kind of latch on to every client and it seems so desperate. Um, but you know, maybe when you have built some, uh, some kind of rapport and, and, and people are know that you're, you're a trusted business and trusted coach and you know, safe, supportive place to go. I, it really warms my heart, especially during these times. Um, and we're filling this in the middle of, you know, other, many States, uh, having, um, uh, not not lockdowns, but uh, having more active responses to, mm-hmm. uh, I think, what is it called? Sorry, um, uh, sheltering. Uh, sheltering in place in response to COVID nineteen is that you know we see people care uh, about um, you as a coach. They care about their gyms. They care uh, about one another. So I think that and just even communicating honestly around these things with clients, it can be very helpful. Yes, I agree. <laughs> One, one, um, Kyle, unless you have, um, I know one thing I was thinking about and, uh, I don't know if it would be outside the context of, of this talk was, um, just around, do you ever speak to like, uh, um, I, I would say like, cause you mentioned like whole 30 and, um, something that like you might have clients who see things on social media and do you have any like thoughts on um, social media and and uh, like maybe how that might affect people's uh, psychology around lifting or around like if you're having a client who's like um, sees is you know very active on there and maybe sees some, like a diet that they want to follow or um, is getting down because like they see a lifter that's that's strong and they really want to be like that and or just I I don't know if there's really a question on that but just like social media in general in in lifting or in fitness industry well social media is just exposure to information and other people's experience so it can be super positive and then it can be damaging depending on where the client is at so um, I think it gives us access to so much more information and, and other people's experiences which can be a great thing I, th- I think the trick with social media is just to um, filter, it's like self filter, what information you are taking in. If you're following on someone on Instagram and it makes you feel bad to look at them or it makes you feel weird or negatively towards yourself to watch what they're doing or what they look like, stop following that. It's like, you know, if you ate an apple and the apple gave you an upset stomach, like don't eat the rest of the apples in that bag. You know, if you are, you subscribe to some newsletter or follow some website or blog and you read it and it like enhances your motivation. It makes you feel good and positive. You try new things and they're effective, you know, great, like more power to you. I think, you know, people need to be mindful consumers and watch what happens when they consume something on social media, the same way, you know, we keep a food diary. It's like, eat something, see how you feel. Yeah. So consume something on social media and see how you feel. Does it enhance your life? Does it add something that wasn't there before or does it take away? And if it takes away, unfollow or unsubscribe. 
Yeah, I think it, it goes back to even what you were saying in answer to Zach's question is like just really cultivating a lot of self-awareness individually around things and being self-aware what adds to your cup, both from like your lifestyle uh, and the things that you see every day and uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lisa, in, in just being respectful of your time, I, I think I have just one more question. And, and really, this is, this is a topic that I'm very passionate about. So I, I, and you've provided a lot of clarity, especially around motivation. I think that's something that I have always had a strange relationship with just in my ability to kind of pinpoint exactly what it is. Um, but that's been super helpful. Um, uh, as has the, the, the kind of bridging of concepts between, um, well, really understanding how motivation may just be at the root of it all and, and, and not seeing it as a bad thing, but, but seeing how, how it all intertwines perhaps. Um, and, and I think where I, what I want to ask and just uh, making this uh, kind of a current event um, question is, is with the state of we are, so it is now uh, based on whenever you're listening to this podcast, hopefully in a brighter future, uh, it is the 23rd of March. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how would you speak to um, uh, perhaps if you were a uh, a fitness professional speaking to clients around their exercise at this time is it simply just letting them speak about how they're feeling and listening or are there certain things in in times of what may seem like crisis or panic that someone might want to kind of interject with a particular type of tone or 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 discussion Mm. This is actually the topic of my Instagram posts right now. So I have a professional Instagram feed that is all performance psychology, motivation, this, this topic. And so last week and this week has been all, you know, in relationship to COVID-19 and its impact on our lives and, and our training. Um, and so, you know, the approach that I am taking is to kind of reflect on the different ways that we are being impacted by COVID-19 and then how can we utilize our training to get what we need for that day or that week. So for example, this morning, my post was on just the uncertainty of this whole thing. And and many of us are uncertain about our financial future. We're uncertain about our professional future. We're, I'm personally uncertain about how I'm going to be a full-time mom with a three-year-old <laughs> running around at home for the next, you know, several weeks. And so, you know, one, one way, one activity, one process that I can get engaged with where I feel certain and I feel engaged and I feel capable is in my training. So this morning when I was doing my at home workout, you know, I went into it with that frame and that mindset and I approached it as I'm going to give this everything I've got. And I'm going to demonstrate to myself that I'm capable of taking it one rep, one set at a time, Um, And coming out of it feeling confident and feeling competent and then take that with me for the rest of the day. Last week, I remember I had some planks and um, I was thinking about getting ready to teach. I teach at a local university and a lot of my students are really stressed out. And so I used my planks as an opportunity to cultivate this really focused intention of being just really solid and and really... um, kind of stable and thought about, you know, I want that to be my intention today so that when I'm online and I'm lecturing to these, you know, 140, 150 students, they feel that I know how to respond to their questions, that I'm calm, that I'm centered, you know, that I'm stable. And so I think that, you know, some people might say they need to take a break from training and that's okay. But I think that training can often be a metaphor for our lives. So we can create an intention or a purpose or goal for, for that workout that day, even if we're just using bands and kitchen towels and whatever. And we can use that experience to give us some fuel for what we feel may serve us well in these very uncertain days. Yeah, well, I think that's a great message and a great reminder for us all uh, to take these matters one step at a time and to create the time in our day to set uh, a focus and an intention for how we want to move forward and perhaps acknowledging to that like in training we don't always have to be perfect that there are going to be times that are hard and times where we might not have immediate answers but uh we just uh keep getting our reps in one rep at a time we'll, we'll see it through the other side exactly 
Awesome, Lisa. So where can people go to find more about you and perhaps even uh, look into your new course offerings? Thank you. So please follow me on Instagram. It's at Dr. Lewis Consulting. So D-R-L-E-W-I-S Consulting. You can also go to my website, which is drlewisconsulting.com. And on that website, you can see different services that I offer. And also there's a link to the course. The course is called Psych Skills for Fit Pros. So you can also go to psychskillsforfitpros.com and you can take a look at um, some of the curriculum and read more about the specifics and the content in the course. Um, The course is currently not on sale, uh, but what I have done for today's interview is created a coupon code. And so if individuals would like $75 off of the course, if they're interested in in the course, they can... um, put in the coupon code of podcast 75 and um, get a discount. And you can either make a one-time purchase for the whole course, or there's a three month payment plan for individuals who, you know, maybe on a budget <laughs> right now with, you know, everything that is going on. It's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. I've, I have some students right now who are, who are like, I needed to make this investment, which was a little bit scary, you know, to purchase the course. But on the other hand, I have more time for education right now. So they wanted to be able to take advantage of it without taking too big a hit on their finances. So there are those options um, available. And um, also on my website are like articles that I've written, other podcasts that I've been on that are on different topics if people are interested in just kind of hearing more. Great. Well, Lisa, I I was so thrilled when when Kyle mentioned that we would have you on after a diving into all of the resources that you just mentioned. And uh, this has been such a wonderful talk and we are so very grateful for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. We we hope you have a good day and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.